Welcome aboard. Today I have with me my uh, whole crew. I have uh, Jonathan Jerry, Ada McQueen, and Emily Shore with me, and we'll be discussing lots of interesting things. But first, let me ask, think of a poison. What is it, Ada? A thing that kills you when you put no, it in your a, body. No, a specific one. A arsenic. Arsenic, arsenic. <laughs> that's what I was looking for because oh, cool. I know that that's the answer that I get every time I ask a question. Think of a poison. Well, even though compounds of mercury and beryllium and cadmium, thallium, and f certainly polonium are more toxic, so are the natural products like botulin and ricin from, from castor beans. But still, arsenic gets more publicity. Why? Well, people may recall how lonely old men were knocked off with poison-laced elderberry wine in the classic 1944 film, Arsenic and Old Lace. Emily, starring who? Wait, I don't even know. I you don't know Arsenic Old Lace? It's a Catherine Hepburn. Uh, oh no, did Jonathan get that right and I didn't? <laughs> I was wildly guessing. Mm. It was the mail was Cary Grant? I know that. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to phone a friend. Come yeah. back in the next segment. <laughs> All right. Okay. So people have heard of that film, 1944, Arsenic and Old Lace, great film, or they may remember having read one of Agatha Christie's many, many stories in which arsenic was the villain, or they may hearken back to historical accounts of the Borgias eradicating rivals with arsenic. They may also have heard of Julia Tofana the 17th century Italian lady who forged a career as a professional poisoner, specializing in creating wealthy widows. They may also be familiar with the theory that Napoleon was either purposely poisoned with arsenic by his British captors or succumbed to vapors emanating from wallpaper that had been colored with arsenic compounds. It is hard to determine exactly when arsenic was first recognized as being toxic. But that discovery likely dates back to the first smelting of metals from their ores sometime, oh, 8,000 years ago or so. Arsenic-containing minerals, such as orpiment or realgar, which are sulfides of arsenic, are sometimes found together with metal ores. When heated in the presence of oxygen, arsenic sulfides convert to arsenic oxide, and that is emitted as a white smoke. The toxic nature of the smoke would have been obvious to those early metallurgists and would not have been difficult to trace the toxicity back to the arsenic minerals. In any case, we know that the toxic properties of arsenic were described as early as the 4th century BC by Hippocrates, and that in 55 AD, Dioscorides, the Greek physician who was in the court of Roman Emperor Nero, recorded how Nero poisoned his stepbrother Britannicus with arsenic. Why? To secure his position as Roman emperor. Curiously, Hippocrates also used arsenic sulfides to treat ulcers and abscesses, and the Ascorides used them as a depilatory. Arsenic compounds were also used in ancient Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, an early recognition that substances that could act as a poison could also act as drugs. By the Middle Ages, arsenic had gained reputation as the king of poisons and the poison of kings. The Medicis and the Borgias, both papal families, rode to power on the coattails of arsenic. And Catherine de' Medici introduced Italian poisoning methods to France when she married the future King Henry II of France. 
It seems the king was aware of his intended talents because he insisted that a unicorn horn be part of her dowry. It was believed at the time that a unicorn horn would offer protection against poisons. Quite a stretch, since, of course, unicorns are mythical creatures. Nevertheless, some 50 unicorn horns were said to be in existence at the time. What were they? Probably rhino or narwhal horns. Whatever they were, they, of course, would have offered no protection against arsenic. There's no question that royalty were worried about being poisoned, and tasters were often employed as human poison detectors. Kings in the ancient Korean kingdom of Bakeji had a different idea. They took to using silver chopsticks to detect arsenic in their food. Apparently, they had become aware of the fact that when silver comes into contact with arsenical minerals, it becomes discolored. Today, we would say it tarnishes. Chemistry is interesting. Silver reacts with sulfides to form black silver sulfide. And that's the bane of silverware lovers. Any sulfide will do, including the traces of hydrogen sulfide normally present in air. Interestingly, the toxicity of arsenic is also due to its reaction with sulfur compounds, in this case with uh, sulfur-containing enzymes that are critical for many body functions. Of course, the Korean kings didn't know the chemistry involved in the tarnishing of silver, but they were aware that silver would discolor when exposed to powders made from minerals which at the time were recognized as being poisonous. Hence, the introduction of silver chopsticks. It is unlikely that this would have been effective because even if there were a significant amount of arsenic in the food, the reaction takes quite some time to develop. Also, there are many naturally occurring sulfides in food. Cabbage, eggs, mustard, onions, garlic. Those are all examples of foods that contain, le that contain arsenic compounds and would lead to the tarnishing of uh, silver. However, it is interesting to note that of all the Asian countries that have a tradition of using chopsticks, only the Koreans use the metal variety. Some historians believe this practice dates back to the king's use of silver chopsticks. People wanted to eat like the king, but could not afford silver, and resorted to chopsticks made of cheaper metals. Maybe so, maybe not. Who knows? Anyway, I've tried to get some silver chopsticks. They don't seem to be available. However, I was able to uh, order some uh, stainless steel chopsticks on Amazon, and uh, also some... Uh, titanium ones. So uh, it's sort of a, a throwback, I guess, to what the ancient kings were, were doing. Then, of course, there is the expression of uh, being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And uh, that goes back to the Middle Ages, because people who were born into wealthy families were said to be born with a silver spoon. And that, of course, because silver was recognized at that time as being a very valuable metal. It still is, uh, although, of course, not quite as valuable as gold or as, as platinum. But on the other hand, gold does not tarnish, and silver does. And it often takes quite an effort to get it untarnished. But if you are keeping your silverware in a closed um, uh, cupboard, one way to protect it is to get some uh, tarnish protection strips. Those are widely available. They are paper strips that are impregnated with charcoal, and the charcoal absorbs the hydrogen sulfide from the air, and it protects the silverware. There are also some stories that a little block of camphor will do the same thing. I've never seen that confirmed, 
Uh, the only th way that I can think of that being reasonable is because uh, camphor is quite volatile and may leave a thin layer of camphor on the silver that protects it from hydrogen sulfide. There's an experiment waiting to be tried. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We will be right back. Okay, during the break, uh, we have had some extensive research done on arsenic and old lace. It is not Catherine Hepburn. It is Priscilla Lane, who I don't even know, actually. But it was Cary Grant, right? It was Cary Grant. Yeah. The movie description sounds very good, and I may be watching it this week. Oh, it's a, it's a great movie. I, I remember yeah. seeing it. Yeah, these looks, old... Uh, looks scary. Two old maids do away with uh, gentlemen with uh, with arsenic. Certainly worthwhile uh, watching. All right, we have some interesting issues to discuss here. First, we'll get to to Jonathan and something known as theta healing. Yeah, this was brought to my attention by uh, by a reader uh, who has recommended this procedure. Um, and uh, whenever I say theta healing, so theta is in the Greek letter T-H-E-T-A. Whenever I say theta healing, you have to hear the registered trademark at the end of it. Uh, so there's a little R in a circle, which reminds us that the preceding words stand for a product. Uh, on the website of theta healing, they describe their approach as a meditation training technique that uses a spiritual philosophy to improve and evolve the mind, body, and spirit. Uh, so essentially what they claim is that they, 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 their healers are tapping into a state of very deep relaxation. Uh, and that's a, it's a sign of the subconscious. And by tapping into this, it can transfer this energy to somebody who requires healing to increase their chance of healing. And on the website, there's a long list of anecdotes. Uh, there's an anecdote describing a teleported tooth, uh, which you, uh, you thought was quite interesting. <laughs> so somebody's tooth wasn't growing in the right place. Uh, they, 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 they went to, to a theta healer and, and the tooth started appearing in the right place. Also, miraculous recovery from hepatitis C. Many cases of cancer just, uh, just uh, miraculously uh, healing themselves. So uh, th there is a little bit of science in there uh, that I want to get into. I mean, the human brain is made up of 86 billion cells that we call neurons. They talk to each other using electricity. And when you put electrodes on our scalp, you can pick up on these waves. You can think of them as these, these sine waves that go up and down, up and down. Uh, and some of these waves are, look very compressed and some of them are more slow and sort of elongated. And there's one such range of these brain waves that we call theta. And so what do these theta waves uh, tell us about the activity in the brain? Well, in rodents, uh, Ada, you will be happy to learn, uh, in, in, in rats and in mice, uh, we see these theta waves when the rodent is exploring its surroundings. That's very cute. It's very cute, but we are not rodents. Uh, and Maybe so, you're not. <laughs> I'm not, uh, and neither are you. And so what happens is that in humans, these theta waves uh, are completely unrelated to what we see in rodents. So when we look at the, at the literature, we do have to be careful. Uh, if a study was done in rodents looking at theta waves, this has nothing to do with our own theta waves. Uh, there are two places in the brain that emit waves in that frequency range. There's the hippocampus, which is nested really deep inside of our brain. This is where our memories are consolidated. And there's a neocortex, which is at the very top. Uh, that is involved in, in higher order functions. Um, but these types of studies are kind of difficult to carry out and, and there's a lot of contradic contradictory information in the scientific literature as to what these theta waves uh, are actually representing, uh, what kind of underlying brain activity is happening in humans. But what people who uh, are behind theta healing, what they're claiming is that their healers 
will increase their theta wave activity when they go into this this type of meditative state and they will channel divine energy that they can redirect to the person next to them to heal them and there is one study that was done on theta healing uh you can look it up it was one study they, they looked at 10 pairs of a healer and somebody who required healing uh they did not measure the healing itself but they put some electrodes on the scalps of both of these people and when the healer went into this meditative state they looked to see if the theta waves indeed went up uh, and do you know what happened? The exact opposite. They went down. Uh, it was a small study, but, you know, one would expect to see something. So obviously the healing is due to the theta waves going down. Well, yeah, so soon <laughs> the website will change, I suspect. Um, but of course, theta healing is even more complicated than that. I mean, this, I, I, I gave you sort of the, the superficial version of it. Uh, it was created by a woman called Vienna Stiebel, uh, who claimed to have cured herself of her cancer. Now, her ex-husband um, was, not, was not happy with that. He, he testified in, course, in, in court saying that uh, she was not definitely told that she had cancer. Uh, the biopsy that she got uh, said that it was a suspicion of cancer, but the, the, the biopsy itself was not diagnostic. So it's very easy to, to heal yourself of cancer when you don't have cancer. The reason why the ex-husband was testifying in court is because somebody got a PhD from this woman. Uh, so you could get a PhD in theta healing. And after getting their PhD, the person said, well, this is worthless now, isn't it? And so they successfully sued her uh, for, uh, for fraud, for breach of contract, and for punitive damages. Uh, but there are still courses in Theta Healing that are available. Uh, there are courses available in Montreal, by the way. Uh, I looked it up, and, and a few weeks ago, there was a, um, a wealth consciousness course that was being taught uh, where they tell you, among other things, that, quote, money is just an illusion. Uh, of course, uh, don't go believing that until you have paid them 250 Canadian dollars for the course on top of 500 American dollars, quote, payable directly to the teacher. Uh, there was a there was a very good BBC Newsnight piece about theta healing. They refer to it as faith healing. I mean, this is what what this is basically this idea that if you pray in some fashion to some divine presence, uh, it can cure your illness. Uh, and apparently in that piece, they reveal that the, this woman, Vianna Stiebel, who's behind Theta Healing, that she had claimed in a meeting that it was possible for Theta Healing to grow back an ovary and an amputated leg. Uh. And the rationale behind all this is they will use the law of attraction, they will use quantum mechanics, they will use epigenetics as a way of explaining how all of this is possible. Uh, so if you have a lot of money to give away, uh, you too can become a theta healer. Yeah, it never stops. You know, you, you think when you've heard the most ridiculous thing about healing, something uh, else comes along. Well, here's something that came my way. The headline is ear tickling therapy could help thwart aging. Okay. Uh, right? Okay. That's, what? That that's, sounds pretty interesting, you know. And uh, so what they did, they attached electrodes to, to the ear, sent a small current, and measured some uh, hormonal output in the body and found that the ratio of uh, certain chemicals changed. Actually, they looked at the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, and they found that the ratio of acetylcholine to adrenaline changed based on, on this. Okay. Uh, on the tickling of the ear. Yes, on the tickling of a little electric current sent through the ear. This, of course, uh, smacks of something called auricular therapy which is yeah. you know the or, idea of or, yeah. sticking things into the ear it's, it's uh, like auricular electroacupuncture exactly exactly uh, but here they they did the study of course the headline is is not warranted because they didn't show any 
thing about thwarting aging. Mm-hmm. But because it is known that that the um, levels of acetylcholine and adrenaline change as you age, mm-hmm. so therefore they say because they noted this change on, on tickling the ear, it has something to do with, with aging. What but, I will say is I believe kind of that because when you scratch a dog's ear, they really love it. So I can see how in humans this would uh, transfer. Yeah, I know m- many humans would like it. Many humans like it, like it too. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a break and we'll be back and talk mosquitoes. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. It's summer, of course, and mosquitoes are out there and they are biting. Of course, it's only the female mosquito that bites, but uh, there's enough of them. And uh, there are all kinds of theories on why people get bitten and others don't. There are many articles written on this, many mistakes made. Ada, mistakes in an article in the Gazette. Yeah, so the July 30th edition of the Montreal Gazette had um, an article on why mosquitoes are attracted to certain people, and it wasn't exactly factually accurate. So Who I... cares about this, though, right? <laughs> um, I get bitten a lot, and I would really like to know why. So I don't like that there's misinformation out there about this. So basically, they talked about the fact that mosquitoes are attracted to CO2, which is true, but they said that essentially if you are a person who gives off more CO2 by having a higher rate of respiration. So if you breathe more, so if you're exercising, you're a big person, a fat person, a pregnant person, you're going to um, exhale more CO2. And they said that that means that mosquitoes will be more attracted to you, but that's just not true. Um, lots of studies have shown that more CO2 doesn't equal more attraction. I liken it to an open sign on a shop. You only need one for, for people to know that you're open and putting up another one isn't going to get more customers. So you need some level of CO2 to get mosquitoes attracted to you, but more CO2 doesn't mean that more mosquitoes will be attracted to you. Um, and they also, so there's a lot of really good repellents out there. Um, the best ones are all based on DEET. Um, and it has been very thoroughly tested. It's a very say, safe but, but chemical. But DEET is a chemical and chemicals right. are evil, right? If Jonathan, we've learned anything from the Dr. Joe shows, mm-hmm. that chemicals are evil. Jonathan, you're a chemical. <laughs> when I had a mix of chemicals. A mixture of chemicals. When I told people that DEET was allowed and referenced your article, they were kind of skeptical. So why... What? It's fine, no? DEET is entirely fine. It's one of the most tested chemicals, honestly. it's. I, I read the safety studies myself, and they have tested up to 100% DEET um, and found no real issues. The Army uses a 99% DEET, but Health Canada for uh, public use only t- recommends using up to 30%. So if you're concerned, you can even go a little bit less than that. And even like a 20% DEET solution will give you five, six hours of protection. Whereas the best alternatives, which use things like Icaridin, uh, PMD, or Midofluthrin, um, those will only work for about three or four hours, even in the best of circumstances. So DEET is where it's at. You really want to use that. And this Montreal Gazette article actually recommended using an Avon product, Avon Skin So Soft. I know my mom sold Avon growing up, so I know I had that stuff around. And in studies, it actually performs really, really terribly. So I don't like that a major Montreal newspaper is giving off advice telling people to use this product when it doesn't protect you from mosquitoes, especially when mosquitoes can carry very deadly viruses, even in Canada. You know, we don't think of having Zika virus here, but West Nile is in Canada, and there have been outbreaks of other mosquito-carried diseases as well. And with the climate crisis, of course, those mosquitoes are moving northward. Yes, exactly. The mosquitoes that survive mostly in tropical climates are the ones that tend to carry the worst diseases, and they're getting closer and closer every year. Mosquitoes, of course, are the most murderous creatures in the world. Mm-hmm. They kill more more uh, humans than any other living species. But I kill more of them by squishing them than any other living species yeah, do. And it's kind of fun. There, there's also a Chinese study that, that showed that uh, one way you can protect yourself from mosquitoes is by lying next to a pig. 
because for some reason pigs are are uh, attractive to to mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. uh, so. It'll depend on the mosquito species because some are anthropophilic, so they um are anthrophilic, so they prefer to bite humans, and some prefer to bite animals. But in Canada, we mostly have ones that prefer humans, so I wouldn't try the pig thing here. Okay, we will take that under. I feel like you were about to make a reference to Trump, but <laughs> you know, we don't have to go there. No, but I, I think. People got the message on that one. Okay, uh, Emily, what came across your desk? So a lot of my um, friends are having babies now. And I started to think about some interesting practices surrounding, I guess, childbirth or whatever. Not with my friends, actually, I should reiterate. But I remember back in the day when it was in the news or it, it made the news um, that Pamela Anderson and other celebrities would keep their placentas in the freezer and or eat them right away or at a later date. Yeah, some people grind it up Make and then capsules. They, yeah. And then right. So there's the eating of the I think Kylie Jenner did it. I would not be surprised. Exactly. So then I start to think like where did this practice come from? Again, not my friends or anything, but I was just trying to think back to that. And it's not a new thing. I mean, back in the day in the 1800s, early 1800s, um, there was something called medicinal medicinal cannibalism, saying it out loud. Um, and this is like basically the lengths that people will go to to improve their health. So nowadays, aside from the placenta, sure, we have transplants that are totally legit and we do rely on them to extend people's lives and skin grafts even. Um, but this practice of medicinal Say it with me. Cannibalism. Medicinal cannibalism. Um, basically, it was eating people to improve our health. Um, not live was, people. No, not live people. It was in. It, they were mummies, and as mummies became more scarce, then it, they would look to corpses, and preferably strong men and women, um, because they could could hopefully cure cure individual ailments. So we need to go back where... to mummies. I miss mummies. No, that's okay. <laughs> anyway, that's where the placenta, you know, came. Oh yeah, it was came a, from. robbing uh, Egyptian tombs of mummies was a big industry mm -hmm. uh, starting in the twelfth century. Because there was such a demand in Europe for mummies as, as uh, you know, ground up mummies usually as, as healing uh, factors. And uh, there were many other human body derived uh, substances. Uh, King Charles II of, of England was a classic. He apparently loved chemistry. He had a chemistry lab in, in, in the palace. What did he do there? He distilled human skulls. Okay. What? And when you distill a human skull, especially if there was moss on it, you will get uh, a liquid. And oh. these were these were termed the king's drops. And they were supposedly curative for epilepsy, many other conditions as well. And believe it or not, executioners were sought because sometimes they would keep the blood from the beheadings and distribute that to people. And it was believed that this was uh, a healthy thing to and You're to making consume. money on both counts. First, you're, you're hired to, to kill, and then you're selling off the uh, product uh, to kill. Exactly. And, you know, some of this goes back to what we call sympathetic magic, right? When Because blood, of course, is a source of life, mm -hmm. and therefore any product from blood. Yeah. And uh, skulls, ground-up skulls, were supposed to be good for headaches, because the skull, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, yeah. Walnuts, walnuts are great for your for brain power, right? Because they look like little brains. Right. Uh, exactly. That's that why it's almost homeopathic sounding. <laughs> Is know? that why kidney beans are good for my kidneys? Of course, right. that must be why. And 
various human products, you know, ground up bones and powdered blood. There was even a recipe uh, at one time for making jam from, from human blood. Blood so, jam? Oh, yeah, for people who That's didn't want to drink the, the blood. That's a great band name. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It probably exists. Yes, and I, and I, I bet jam. someone could make money right now from um, posing that as a cure-all, human blood jam. Do you want to try? Are you offering to donate the blood? Well, well, I, donating, I wouldn't have so much trouble. The, the, trying to be end product. Uh, the, the moss that grew on skulls, on buried skulls, was especially prized. They would scrape that off and uh, make medicines out of that. I've heard that moss can cure cancer. There was a viral video that was making <laughs> Yeah, there was something last. like oh, yes. that. There's some guy called Jonathan Jerry did yeah, a viral maybe. video. Oh, I thought it was Dr. Tarjani. Yeah. 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 But I mean, the placenta, I mean, that actually sounds like something that could be sold on Goop. I mean, obviously I not well, placentas, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I mean the, the the power of the power of the placenta. If I eat a placenta, am I not a vegetarian anymore? Exactly, you're yeah, not. Okay. No, okay. you're not. It's All right, auto cannibalism. <laughs> okay, we got to take a break. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We will be right back. Two articles, or at least an article and an ad. One article: stem cell treatment could cure baldness, and uh, also an ad in. Uh, a local newspaper about a recently discovered ingredient that promotes new hair growth. The reason I bring this up because one has some scientific semblance to it, the other one is is total nonsense. Stem cells, Jonathan. I mean, stem cells are real, of course. Stem cells are real. They exist. They have a lot of promise, a lot of potential. There are some. There's some very good research being done uh, on the topic, uh, but there's also a lot of hype behind them. Uh, in fact, uh, Timothy Caulfield, friend of the show, uh, has referred to it as science ploitation. So, right, so you're using this scientific language and these these very basic research findings to sell a product which is not ready for prime time yet. So it, it does hold a lot of promise. Now, this article about stem cell treatments cure baldness does have some science behind it. Of course, what they don't mention the headline is that the study was done on mice. In mice. I was going to say mice. my friend James Heather. Hey, we're back created, to rodents. Yeah, who created the... So if you got some hairless mice out there... Well, well, it was human hair, though. Uh, it was human hair that uh, they grew on the back of mice. Uh, so, I mean, it's a step in the right direction. But again, this was not done in humans. Right. Uh, but again, I, I want to make a distinction here between that and this ad that, that cropped up in, in the newspaper, uh, which tells you that, that uh, an extract of some sort of plant uh, material, uh, which contains a variety of polyphenols, antioxidants, and whatever, and you rub them on the head and uh, it grows hair. What is interesting is that there actually is a picture of the before and after in the ad. I can't really see any difference in the before and the after. So That's not a good sign. Did you look at the study? Study. Uh, there, I can't look at the study because there is no reference to the study. There is, there is. They, I found it. I, I, I took a few minutes to look at it, so I did not do a thorough look at the. At the so study what did they say? So they they, they gave uh, tocotrienol supplements, which is uh, vitamin E, basically. There you go. So there were twenty one volunteers, yeah. uh, and there was a placebo, uh, which was soya bean oil, uh, also in the in a, in a soft gelatin capsule. Uh, they took them for a period of eight months. Uh, they identified an area of two by two centimeters uh, where hair was thinning. Uh, they used permanent marker to mark it on each of these participants, and they counted the hair at the beginning, halfway through, and at the end. Um, and I mean, the the numbers are going in the right direction. Now, of course, not everybody's uh, hair um, sort of multiplied at the same rate, so there's a range, and the ranges for the tocotrienol and for the placebo overlap. 
but overall, there was there was more hair on average in people who took tocotrienol versus the placebo. Uh, so it, it does not look like complete nonsense to me. Now, I do have to say this is one study. And as I always say, uh, a single study can lie. Never trust a single study. I would love to see this being reproduced. It was a small study. Uh, it, but I mean, the, the methodology was fairly sound. But again, I would like to see more work on this because, uh, you know, male pattern baldness has been very uh, challenging to to treat. I mean, we have some medications that work for some people, uh, not so much for others. And then people in which in whom they, it works, uh, it can slow down or sort of freeze the the loss of hair. But I mean, we don't have a miracle cure for for baldness at, the, at this point. And the pictures in the ad are not very compelling. Yeah, well, one of the big problems with studies like this is the difference between statistical significance. So a study might show that, yes, there is more hair and clinical significance, which is the patients actually look at their head and go, wow, I'm less bald than when I started. True, Just yeah. because there's more hair doesn't mean it's an appreciable amount of more hair. Yeah. Even with, uh, you know, the two drugs that are um, accepted, you know, uh, for use, uh, Rogaine and uh, Propecia. Propecia, yeah. And... Uh, when you look at the studies, uh, those are not very seductive either. Uh, the number of people who really get satisfactory regrowth is, is very few. But, I mean, in some cases, as, they yeah, do. As I also say, uh, look at all how many MDs and PhDs are bald. Uh, if we had the yeah. cure for baldness, do you really think those people would be bald? I remember looking at a, a study a few years ago where um, cows were asked to lick bald heads. Cows. cows. How do you cows, ask cows. a cow yeah. to lick a bald head? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I guess what do you, you put on the bald head? <laughs> Excuse me, <laughs> Bessie. Would you mind? So and they dogs for they, cows, they claimed yes. they claimed that Grass. there was some some benefit to the cow licking. I'd try that one. Yeah. That seems fun. Okay, on a, in a more serious vein. <laughs> that wasn't serious. Uh, in a more serious vein, uh, there's a doctor, unnamed, in the Montreal area, who is diagnosing people with electrosensitivity. And uh, there are a couple of buildings, I, I think they're in Verdun, uh, where uh, the people have become convinced that uh, they're sensitive to electromagnetic radiation and this is making them sick, uh, whether it's coming from you know antennas around their house or their microwave ovens or cell phones, whatever, it, it isn't really clear. But electrosensitivity is not a medically recognized condition. And uh, there are a number of studies that have been done on these people who say that they're electrosensitive, but when you do it in a proper double-blind fashion, they can't tell whether or not they're being exposed to uh, electromagnetic yeah, fields. Yeah, because you can turn the field on and off and ask them, how do you feel, how do you feel? And they just can't tell. Absolutely, you get, you get these random answers. Yeah. Uh, of course, what uh, is also important to point out that these people really do think that they are not well, the symptoms uh, are real. The symptoms are very real. Yeah. It's just like with and, chronic Lyme disease. It's like, yes. but is the diagnosis real? Yeah. In this case, it doesn't seem to be. And people, of course, suffer from all kinds of symptoms for all kinds of reasons. And if something is brought to their attention as being a possible cause, they are very ready to jump on that bandwagon. And as I understand it, there, there um, was uh, someone in, in one of these buildings who became convinced that she was getting sick because of this. And they went around, knocked on doors in the apartment building, asked people how they felt. And of course, some said they have headaches, upset stomach, whatever, as, as you know, the, the common thing. And then she said, well, you know, there's this electromagnetic radiation. And then of course, they start making the, the mm -hmm. connection. And then you have some doctor confirming it, 
God knows based on what, mm. because there there are no criteria of, of diagnosing the electrosensitivity. But also, I think it uh, bears mentioning that this is a doctor who had his license revoked for several years uh, because he was prescribing some untested uh, hormonal therapies. So he is not exactly one of the luminaries of the medical profession. So electrosensitivity is, is not a recognized condition. Nevertheless, there are people who sell various kind of filters that you plug into the wall that are supposed to get rid of what they call dirty electricity, which are surges in the electric current that supposedly cause all of these, uh, these problems. There is no science behind that But whatsoever. Joe, they laughed at Galileo. They did. They also laughed at Bozo the Clown, <laughs> but <laughs> Bozo, of course, did not have the same kind of insight as, uh, as Galileo. Anyway, uh, that is it. We had fun. Uh, the hour has just flown by. We will do this again uh, next month. But uh, I will see you again, same time, same station next week. So until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.